0: Well, I'm glad to be back in the pulpit this morning. Uh, last week we had a guest preacher uh, who did an outstanding job, but we, he happened to be in town, one of, uh, part of one of the missionary organizations that we support. And I thought Brian Crawford did a great job preparing us for what's to come, hopefully, Lord willing, this fall, um, in terms of engaging uh, a secular world, engaging the next generation, the sort of millennial generation. Um, And kind of the struggles that they're facing in terms of dealing with the Christian faith. But today, today we're going to finish 1 John. So I kind of took a break from 1 John to finish it today. Um, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to the end of the book, at the end of the letter, verse 21. Uh, 13 of chapter 5 to verse 21. And really, John, in ending this letter, is kind of giving some pastoral advice. Pastoral wisdom. And uh, what is he going to talk about sort of in the end of his letter? What what is he saved to the end? And really what he's going to focus primarily on is prayer. Notice John has said very little about prayer up to this point in time. But here he's going to focus on prayer. Now uh, two weeks ago I kind of uh, off the cuff, wasn't even in my notes, but I kind of gave a report card to our church. And I gave us a B- minus in prayer. And Jessica, my wife, told me, that was a little harsh, Rick. Sounds a little harsh, but I'm just kind of a tough grader. Uh, I actually think we're really, we do a great job with prayer. I just think there's always a lot of room to grow. Uh, a prayer shows us, shows our dependence upon God, that we as a church realize we're not just a business. We're not just a secular organization. Uh, we're not just a social club or a social organization trying to do good in the world. We are dependent upon God for everything. And prayer is our way of showing that dependence on Him. And I, just even before the service this morning, um, as I was getting ready to do the pastoral prayer, I don't know how many people, a number of people came up and asked me to pray for certain things, because we know prayer is powerful. So don't take that B minus as a negative, that's a positive, but it's something certainly that we can continue to sort of build upon together. Uh, We depend upon God in prayer. We depend upon the true and living God, because He is real And because he is the real true God, he has the power to actually act and to work in our lives. Look with me at chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We're In, uh, chapter, uh, in your bulletin, you'll see an outline of the breakdown of chapter 5, 13 to 21. Uh, the big idea here is some pastoral advice on prayer and idolatry. And we'll get to that idolatry part and how those two things are related in just a bit here. But in 13 to 15, be confident when you pray particularly in God's will. And verses 16 to 18, pray for other Christians and for conversions. And then 19 to 21, stay away from idolatry and false teaching. So first, looking at verses 13 to 15, be confident when you pray in God's will. In God's will. He says, I write these things to you who believe. So he's writing here to Christians. He's writing to churches, probably multiple local churches in Ephesus here. Um, I write to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. God. One of the false teachings he's been dealing with this entire letter are those who deny that Jesus came in the flesh, that he just appeared to be uh, the Son of God. He wasn't actually the Son of God in the flesh with us. And he says here, you who believe the truth, you who believe, who stand in the true Orthodox Christian faith, that you may know that you have eternal life. And a big part of his letter has been this issue of assurance. You can be certain that you belong to God. You can be fully confidence. And I know a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians who aren't, that are still wondering, I hope I get to heaven. I hope when I die I'll be with Jesus, but I'm still not sure. And First John, among many other parts of the Bible, give us a sense of assurance. You can be sure. You can be certain. Because it's not based on how good of a person you are. It's based on what Christ has done and the fact that we're trusting in his work. So is Christ's work sufficient? Is it enough to save me? And if it is, then I'm fully confident that I'm going to be with God forever in glory. I don't have to doubt that at all. But here's one of the outworkings, or one of the applications of having that level of assurance. 14. This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Uh, That's a powerful statement. If we ask anything, he hears us. Anything according to his will. I think this argues against something too that we hear often in the evangelical Christian world. Uh, we hear this idea that prayer really is about me, not God. Prayer does more to change me; it doesn't doesn't do anything to affect God. Uh, that's not true. <laughs> All over the Bible, we hear something very different: that God hears prayer. Now, does prayer affect us? Of course, it does. Does it help us conform uh, to the image of Christ? Of course, God is at work in us when we spend time in his presence. But don't miss the fact that God actually really hears our prayers. And you might say at that point, well, he hears us. Uh, That doesn't mean he's going to give us whatever we ask, right? Look what John says in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, you might think, John, I, I think you just overstepped, right? There was a little bit of a boundary there about prayer, and you just stepped right over it. You just said, God gives us whatever we ask for in prayer. Uh, this almost sounds like a prosperity teaching, almost like a name it and claim it. You know, whatever you want, you get it as long as you ask it in Jesus' name. Um, the truth of the matter is, promises like this are all over the Bible. Uh, God is lavish in his description of prayer and what he offers to us in prayer. Having said that, certainly he started off by saying that he is writing to those who believe in Jesus, those who have then submitted their lives to him. So he's not saying anyone that asks anything in Jesus' name, like a, like a slot machine or like a whatever you want to call it, a, a concession machine, that they get whatever they put into it. So these are people who have a relationship with God, And of course, he said in verse 14, those who ask anything according to his will, he hears them. And then 15 says, and those he hears, he answers. So when we spend time, and here's the mystery of prayer, friends. When we spend time in the presence of God and in prayer, we want his will to be done. And when we want his will to be done, God is very happy to make his will done as we've asked for it. Uh, don't 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 see this as a sort of trick it's not a trick we begin to truly and really desire god's will above our own i think we could say at the end of the day i don't really want my prayers to be answered if those prayers are really not what god wants for me in fact when we say something is in jesus name what we're saying is in accordance with who he is his very being his very person That's why we often as Christians end by saying, in Jesus' name, meaning in line with who he is. And even if you don't end that way, typically we end our prayers with amen, meaning so be it, Lord. It's in your hands. There's a sense of trust in God. All that being said, friends, I don't want to miss the fact of what he's really saying here and that prayer is powerful. God does mighty and powerful things when we spend time with him in prayer. I hope, if, if, if nothing else, hopefully it's a lot more than this, but if nothing else, your being a member here at, at First Baptist Church has discipled you as an individual Christian to pray more. That in your life, you are praying. You're spending time throughout the day in the presence of God, talking to him, asking him for things, thanking him, spending time, as Jesus said, in the closet. Go into your closet, close the door, and spend time with your Father who is unseen, and he who is unseen will reward you. So if if nothing else, I hope that has been part of what's happened of your participation in this church. You've been personally encouraged to spend more time individually with the Lord in prayer. And God does answer mightily, as we said. But I hope it's more than that. I hope you've also been encouraged to pray with other people. Um, Pray. We certainly pray when we gather together as a church. we just spent some time in prayer. Um, I have a picture of us praying over a brother, Al. We just uh, prayed for him this morning. Right after the prayer, I did get a response from his daughter on, uh, on Facebook Messenger. He's doing better. So that's a good start right there. Uh, God certainly hears and answers prayer. We model prayer when we pray together. And we are genuinely spending time in the presence of God. Uh, we do have a Wednesday morning gathered prayer time. Uh, pretty much, I would say, all of our boards and committees and ministries pray when we begin to meet and usually close in prayer at the end. (laughs) That's not just a formal thing that we just tend to do. Let's let's hope it's not that. Uh, It's genuinely submitting our work into the presence of God and trusting that God hears and he answers prayer. Um, I've said this before, but there there are certain things you will never be able to convince me of. Um, You'll never be able to convince me there's no God uh, because I've been in relationship with him for a long time. So uh, I think maybe earlier on in my Christian life, there may have been some doubts about his existence. Uh, at this point, I don't really doubt his existence. I, I doubt my own sort of uh, walk with him oftentimes or something like that, but certainly he's there. You will never convince me that prayer does not have an effect on life. I, I've, I've seen, I think we could we could spend time just sharing testimonies of all that God has done through prayer and because of prayer i think it's one of those things that we won't see very clearly until we see it in hindsight in heaven and in glory we'll see all that was done because we spent time with the lord and he used that as part of his will to accomplish his purposes as we spent time with him in prayer we don't just spend time with praying for ourselves Uh, look at this next section we pray for others And we pray for other Christians. This is probably theologically uh, the most difficult section of this final letter, final part of the letter for John. Notice what he says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, uh, brother means a brother in Christ, brother or sister in Christ. So he's talking about fellow Christians, probably in the same church. You see someone committing a sin, and he describes that sin as one not leading to death. Now, I don't think he's talking about physical death here. Uh, I think he's talking about spiritual death. They're committing a sin not leading to death. What would be an example of a sin not leading to death? Uh, somebody having, losing their temper in um, and, and, and a fit of rage, saying and doing something that they regret. Uh, somebody committing some grievous sexual sin, coming back, repenting of that. Uh, somebody telling a, a gossipy, slanderous lie um, that hurts somebody else and, and then comes to, to see their sin. A lot of things. We could go endlessly. As he says later on, all wrongdoing is sin. If you see some, a brother or sister committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, what should we do? Pray. Pray for them. I'll start there. Uh, ask God, and God will give him life. And as we've defined life throughout 1 John, life refers to eternal life. Uh, that, that person remains in Christ and continues on in the faith, um, and will be forgiven. And he says here, I'm referring to those who commit sin, sins that don't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. And I'm not saying you should pray for that. So what is the sin that leads to death? Uh, oftentimes, this has been interpreted as referring to suicide. Um, I would just say, point blank, I'm almost certain that's not what he's talking about. Why? Because it's nowhere even mentioned in the context. Uh, That would just be a strange thing to sort of throw in out of nowhere. And as we've seen, uh, the sin that doesn't lead to death is not talking most likely about a physical death. It's talking about a spiritual death. This is something that I think has affected our church. Uh, Not too, too long ago, I think it's been two, three years ago now, we had a, a member commit suicide. And I think some struggled with whether this person is in glory, is in heaven, having committed a grievous sin, which certainly it is a sin, Uh, The person that we're referring to struggled deeply with uh, depression. Uh, He was bipolar, and he was also uh, one who struggled with alcohol addiction for most of his life. He hit a low point. He was filled with paranoia about something going on in his life, and sadly, he took his own life. Did he commit the sin that leads to death? I don't think so. Don't think that's the point of what he's saying. here. So, what is the sin that leads to death? Looking at the context of 1 John, it almost certainly refers to the false teaching that he's talking about. Many people have left the church There's a false teacher, leading people astray. Some have rejected the faith, no longer believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and are therefore no longer part of the church and no longer walking with Christ. Now, you might say, well, I, I, thought, I thought, Pastor Rick, you, you can't actually commit a sin that leads to I thought you can't lose your salvation. Uh, Again, from a human perspective. So from a divine perspective, we've talked about that earlier. Somebody who rejects the faith shows that they never knew to begin with. That's what John himself said early in this letter. Those who went out from us, rejected the Christian faith, followed a false teacher, um, it shows that they never actually belonged to us to begin with. Their departure is actually a demonstration of the lack of genuineness of their faith. But certainly from a human perspective, people join a church all the time, Profess faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, and leave a church. Reject the Lord. I was just reading about um, Bart Campolo. He's uh, Tony Campolo's son. He was an evangelical pastor, uh, teacher, kind of a popular writer and speaker um, who now does not believe there's even a God. So he's rejected the faith. He's, he's, he's actually become a secular humanist chaplain. They actually have secular humanist chaplains. So he's a chaplain. Um, at a school in, the, in South Carolina who doesn't believe there is even a God. Uh, so from a human perspective, you have people who are going in and out all the time. It happens sadly and tragically. And So what's his point here? Can you, can you pray for them? I think what his point here is not that you can't pray at all for them, uh, but you can't pray the same way. Uh, when you're praying for a brother or sister in Christ who's stuck in some sin... You're praying for them as someone who is united to Christ and united to you. You're asking that God gives them a conviction about their sin so they don't continue in that. And you're asking, of course, that Christ's death is sufficient to cover them. And we're confident that it is. When we're talking and praying for someone who has left the faith, someone who does not believe in Christ, somebody who has been caught up in a false teaching or a cult, The prayer is very different. We're not asking for them to be forgiven in their current situation. Because God has already spoken to that. Outside of Christ, there is no grace and forgiveness in that sense. What you can pray for is that they would come to faith in him. I have a quote from Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator. I think he brings this out really nicely. We cannot pray... uh, This commentary is on this specific section of Scripture. We cannot pray that the sins of the impenitent and unbelieving should, while they are such, be forgiven them. Or that mercy, which supposes the forgiveness of sins, should be granted to them while they willfully continue such. But we may pray for their repentance, for their being enriched with faith in Christ, and thereupon For all other saving mercies. I would agree 100% with Matthew Henry. Friends, we we are called to pray for each other. And we pray for other Christians. (laughs) Uh, If you see a brother or sister who's in need, you see someone who's struggling with a sin, pray for them. Again, prayer is powerful. God hears us. When we ask things according to his will, he loves to give us and to grant it to us. Pray for someone who's stuck in a sin, whatever that sin may be that God would help them get disentangled from it, that they would continue to walk with the Lord in faith. And pray for those who don't know Christ, who are stuck in a cult, those who are not walking with the Lord, those who maybe have rejected the faith. Pray not that they'd be forgiven in their current state. Pray that they would come to know Jesus for the first time, that they would have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. They'd see him as you and I can see him. Those here who believe in the Lord Jesus would see him as beautiful and as good and as saving and as worth giving all our lives to him to follow him in truth. Friends, we're called to pray for each other. That's something we see all over the Bible. We pray for those in need. We pray for those in prison. I've been in regular contact with two of our folks. One's a member, one's not. One's not. Uh, but two of our folks who were are part of this church um, who are in prison. One of them is serving a life sentence. He's a member in good standing. That sounds kind of strange, maybe, right? Uh, he committed a grievous and horrible sin when he was 18 years old. Uh, he came to faith while in prison, uh, turned his life over to Christ, was out of prison for a short period of time. During that time, he became a member of our church was sent back to prison for the rest of the remainder of his life, unless something happens, and yet remains a member in good standing of our church, and yet serving a life sentence with us. The other, hopefully, Lord willing, will be out in November. We're called specifically to remember those in prison. I know some of you do, and you regularly write and contact those in our church. We're called to pray for those in governing authority. Uh, Yes, we can debate the issues. And yes, there is a place for criticism. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Um, But first and foremost, let's pray. I'm part of something called the Ockengay Fellows Program at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, uh, where we basically as New England pastors, a group of New England pastors, kind of engage in different uh, parts of the sort of uh, culture. And this last session I was at this week was on government and politics. I got to spend some time in the state house. Uh, This is the room underneath the big Big uh, gold dome, okay? So, right under the gold dome on Beacon Hill, the State House, is the Senate. That's the House of the Senate right there. Kind of a beautiful room. They just recently redid it. Uh, these are the people who make a lot of decisions for us here in Massachusetts. I don't know if you guys know who your, your state senator is and who your state, state representative is. Um, probably should know that. Um, I gotta say, I knew who our state rep is. I didn't know who our state sen- senator was until recently, so I failed on that. But one of the things we did, we got to spend time with a former sta- state rep who now uh, was appointed by the governor to work on a national level. Um, uh, And she she was a devout Christian, strong follower of Jesus, spoke very openly and clearly about her faith. And I get to ask her the question, I said, what could your local church do better for you? Uh, Her and her husband, both involved in the political sphere. And she said, pray for me. I've never had a church, my my own church, pray for me. Uh, No one come up to me and said, how can I pray for you? And I thought, how sad. If anything else, we're called to pray for those in governing authorities, right? I mean criticizing them, getting angry at them, all that stuff, debating uh, strongly about them is, is, is all stuff that we can do as part of being a part of the American uh, society. None of that's commanded in Scripture. You know what is commanded in Scripture? To pray for those in governing authority. And here is a sister in Christ involved in the national level who says, I've never had anyone pray. So as a group of pastors, guess what we did? We said, let's pray. <laughs> so we, we actually spent some time laying hands and praying for her and for her work and and recognizing that important work that she's doing as a believer within that sphere. We pray for each other. We pray for one another. I encourage you to pray for our church. I really hope, you're thinking about as we're getting going here in the fall, I hope you pray for our church daily. It can be short, I don't mind that, you know, but just pray, pray for, I pray for my church family, I pray for First Baptist, help us to be faithful, help us to be effective for the kingdom, help us to continue to reach people for Jesus. I hope you pray daily for our church family. Um, pray for me, please. <laughs> I always want prayer. Uh, when people say they pray for me, it's a, it's, it is a, a kind of a shocking, overwhelming thought that people literally in their homes are spending time, maybe around your dinner table, whatever, praying for me. And I really, really am grateful and encouraged by the fact that you do. We pray with confidence. We pray for others. And finally, we stay away from idolatry in false teaching. Look at verses 19 to 21. Um, he ends this letter by saying, we know that we're from God, uh, meaning those who truly believe in Jesus, those who are standing in the truth, we're from God. The whole world, however, lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, it's under the spell. It's under the power of a usurper. Uh, somebody who has claimed authority over this world. Uh, the world has fallen. It's in rebellion against God, more or less, depending on where and when. Uh, more or less in rebellion against God. But everywhere in rebellion against him. We're from God. The world's under the power of the devil, the power of the evil one. Verse 20... But we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him who is true. I love what uh, Brian Crawford last week told us about truth. That very question of truth is the, the key question of our, of our day. What is true? How do we know what is truth? He's saying Christ has given us what is true. We may be in the minority, depending on, again, what culture, what time, uh, period, what, what, what part of the world. Christians generally are in the minority, but we have the truth. Uh, truth is never decided by majority vote, right? You don't sit around a table and say, let's go ahead and take a vote as to what's true. <laughs> uh, true is true whether you like it or not, even if nobody believes it. And he's saying here, we have the truth. We're in him who is true, and in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the true God, and he's the one who gives eternal life. And then John ends his letter kind of in a seemingly non sequitur, uh, uh Kind of change of subject. He says, little children, his most endearing and maybe perhaps most common way to refer to the people he's writing to, uh, his children, spiritually, but really more importantly, God's children, little children, keep yourselves from idols. End of book. <laughs> no explanation as to what he's talking about. Why, what, where did that come from, John? Why did you throw in something about idolatry? Let me give you a little bit of background here. Uh, idolatry is the biggest sin in the Old Testament, the most common struggle in the Old Testament. So if you read the first half, actually first two-thirds of your Bible, uh, the biggest struggle for Israel in particular was the issue of idolatry. Who do we worship? Uh, do we worship the invisible God with no name, uh, the God who leads us out of, out of Egypt into the Promised Land, Um, Or do we worship all of these other gods that these nations have? That seem to be doing some pretty powerful stuff. In fact, some of these other nations would do things like Baal or Molech. They would worship these other gods. They would actually offer their children to these idols. And usually, and this is how, remember, keep in mind, there are spiritual forces at work, evil and good in this world. When they would offer their children... Something powerful would happen. They would be spiritually empowered in darkness. Strange things happen. And Israel constantly struggles with, well, I want some of that stuff. <laughs> I want some of that power. I want to know these, these gods of the nations. And they're constantly battling, yinning and out. And Ezekiel, for example, it mentions the queen of heaven. And when they worship the queen of heaven... Their houses get filled with food and prosperity. (laughs) They see real, genuine effect when they start worshiping the queen of heaven. There is no queen of heaven, by the way, according to the Bible. The closest thing to the queen of heaven is the church, the bride of Christ. But even that, I wouldn't describe us as the queen of heaven. There is only God who is eternal, who rules over heaven. On and on, the struggle with idolatry. By the time the New Testament is written idolatry isn't the biggest deal anymore. Now, don't get me wrong. People still had idols. Uh, the Greeks would still worship the pantheon of gods, or the Romans, the Roman pantheon of gods. But for the most part, even the average Greek didn't really believe that Zeus is in heaven with a bunch of other gods. And I mean, they kind of lost that. It became more philosophical at that point in time. Um, yeah, they would go to the temples, so they'd go and, and offer the, the incense and do what they needed to do, and, uh, because socially that's what you had to do, but they didn't have this strong sense of these humanoid-like people in Olympus ruling over everything. What we deal with instead, the primary sin of the New Testament, is false teaching. It's not, no longer really a question of idolatry, it's, it's do we understand God rightly? And there are just so many different beliefs about him and there are false teachers like the one John is dealing with who is pulling people away from the truth of who Christ is again and again. In almost every letter of the New Testament, they're dealing with questions of false teaching. Here's what I think John is doing. He's equating the two. He's saying to these Christians there, when you turn to worship God wrongly, When you turn to a false teacher into false teaching, when you look at Christ simply for what you can get out of him, because remember the teaching was a very fleshly, worldly way of approaching him. God's not interested in the physical, so therefore you can do whatever you want physically. It doesn't really matter. Sin all you want sexually, whatever. It makes no difference. When you do that, you commit idolatry. You've turned from the living God to worship something and someone else. I think that's his point. Keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves focused on Jesus. You know, when I think about the major false teaching that we deal with today, um, I don't think it's Molech. I don't think it's Bel. Um, I don't think it's Serinthus or whoever John is dealing with in First John. Um, I think of the biggest issue. In fact, I would say that the major false teaching cults that we deal with today has even changed maybe from a generation ago. A generation ago, I would have pointed to some other cult-like groups. I think the biggest false teaching we face today are two things. I think it's traditionalism and prosperity teaching. Let me tell you what those are. So traditionalism is to basically make church God. It's to basically take our traditions, uh, what we like, our preferences, and make that what my faith is really all about. Uh, As long as I get my way, when it comes to a certain style, when it comes to a certain type of architecture, when it comes to a certain way of doing a service, as long as I get that, that to me is the most important thing, and that becomes an idol in and of itself. And churches are sad when it comes to this, because you have a watching world saying, what are you guys doing? (laughs) We're, We're out here dying to know God, and you guys are fighting about silly things. Uh, Tom Rainer uh, put a list together, kind of took an informal uh, sort of survey as to of things that churches fight about um, and sometimes even divide about. Here's, I'm not going to read them all, but here's a handful of them. Uh, a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. So that was a big, huge fight for one church. Um, a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase. Black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. That's what they're spending their, their, their time arguing about. A petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. Sorry, I don't know. Mike, you know. That's weird. Uh, a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. That was the big issue they were fighting over. Business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater, a weed whacker, or not. It took two business meetings to resolve whether they should buy a weed whacker. Arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. Um, an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal because you know deviled, <laughs> deviled eggs. A disagreement over using the term pot luck instead of pot blessing for the church. I guess uh, one more. Uh, a dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black T-shirts since black is the color of the devil. I guess. So, I don't know. We spend our time fighting about silly things and miss the fact that we are worshiping the true and living God and are responsible to witness for him. And the other is prosperity teaching. Which is kind of the other end of the spectrum, which basically says it's all about me. That's why God exists. He exists to make me happy. And he, makes, he exists to make me get what I need because I need a nice job and I need a nice new car And I need a nice, a bigger house. And so, if I have enough faith in God and do what He wants, then He owes me, and He's got to make sure I get this stuff. Otherwise, He's failing me. If I'm unhealthy, if I'm dying of cancer, God is not doing what He's supposed to do. I just need to have more faith, then He's going to do His part of the job. It's a view of God where we get to keep Him in our own little pocket and carry Him wherever we want. Friends, keep yourselves from idols. We serve the living and true God over all the universe. And yes, he loves us. Yes, he's given us his son to make us his own forever. And yes, he provides for us. Uh, We've been praying. There are two people in this church that were recently, I've been praying specifically for them as far as a job. Um, One of them went about six months and has his dream job. The other one I found out just this morning got the job that she was looking for. So yes, God provides. Don't get me wrong. So... I'm not certainly not saying we don't pray for needs that God doesn't provide, but we come before Him as God, and us as His creatures, reconciled through Christ, and looking for His greatest gift, the gift of eternal life. Let's come to the close on first John here. This is John as an old man. Uh, John is wiser. <laughs> uh, he's pastoral um, and he cares deeply for the local church Uh, he wasn't always that way if you read the gospels he actually got a nickname he was at one point called boanerges uh, a son of thunder because his temper uh, he lost temper with somebody and he said to jesus jesus can we pray that fire would come down from heaven and destroy them that was was his request and jesus said no john no that's not what we're doing Uh, but here he is now older and wiser He's been through the ups and downs. He's seen Christ die and rise from the dead. He's seen churches struggle and split. He's been persecuted greatly for his own faith. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. And what do we find here? Not a bitter old man, but a joyful, loving, engaged pastoral figure who loves the church and wants to make sure that they continue to walk in the faith. Let's pray. Well, our gracious God, we do recognize together this morning that prayer is a powerful thing. It's not powerful because of us. It's powerful because the God who rules this universe hears us and loves us and wants us to be with you. Uh, Lord, in fact, when we don't pray, uh, when we fail to make good use of this blessing, Father, I think it disappoints you as a father with his sons and daughters. You want us in your presence And Lord, we we know that you um, ultimately know better than us. We know know that your wisdom is beyond us. And we would not want anything that you would not want for us. And yet, Lord, uh, we would pray for great and mighty things. Lord, you've heard our lengthy um, health concerns. We lift them up before you. You've heard, Lord, the, the number of requests for our ministries To be blessed as they begin this fall. Pray that we'd use them for your kingdom. And we pray, Father, that you would add daily to the number of those who are being saved. That we would experience together as a church many, many more people coming to know the Lord Jesus, celebrating their repentance and faith through baptism, and engaged in Christian community and in the mission that you've set before us. Lord, we want to be faithful but we recognize that the fruitfulness comes from you. So Lord, help us. Keep us from idols. Keep us focused on the true and the living God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.